Hi, this is Sarah from Oklahoma. Dusted is a StoryWonk podcast. To show your support and for exclusive content, visit patreon.com slash StoryWonk. Thanks! Hi, everyone, and welcome to the show. I'm Alistair Stevens. I'm Lonnie Diane Rich, and this is Dusted, your casually trained in ultrasound technology Buffy the Vampire Slayer podcast. <laughs> this week, we're watching episode eight of season three of Angel Quickening. This episode aired on November 12th, 2001, and is written by Jeffrey Bell. We last saw Bell's work in Billy, which was co-written with Tim Minear and still stands at number one on the big list. Do you think that quickening is going to trouble the very top of the list? I, I don't anticipate that, but sometimes by the time we finish discussing an episode, <laughs> my opinions change in the process. Something catastrophic would have to change before no, quickening threatened Billy would have to change, at the top of yes. the list. This episode was directed by Skip Skulnick, who stands at number one on our big list of coolest director names ever. This is Skulnick's first episode of Angel. He will direct five in total by the end of the show's run. Skulnick isn't exactly what you would call a journeyman director. Aside from Angel, he's only directed for one other team. TV show, but he is a jack of all trades, having IMDb credits for production, editing, production managing, sound, you name it, he's done it. He has served as a producer on Angel for the entire run of the series, and it's fun to see what he does in the director's chair. And I'll say, the guy's got a touch. I think the directing in this is actually pretty good. Yeah, yeah. I think so too. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of unnecessarily impressive work yeah. in this episode, and it's by no means a simple episode to direct. No, it isn't. It is a very confused episode as written, and I think that that always puts a director kind of on the back foot sure. when they're trying to visually interpret something that doesn't make a lot of sense in the actual narrative movements. But I think he did a pretty good job. And I think you can see his production background coming through in the way that he handles these small contained spaces. We have a number of discrete spaces that are somewhat unlike any other spaces that we've dealt with in Angel to date. I'm thinking in particular of the operating theater. And Mm -hmm. I'm thinking in particular of the alley right at the end of the episode. Mm -hmm. These are really tight and constrained spaces. And I think Skulnik does really good work with all of them. I think he absolutely does. I mean, I I have a sense for the visual spaces (laughs) more than I have a sense for the narrative movement. But I think that that's, you know, it speaks to his credit. I think that's Definitely fair. <laughs> Let's get into the beat by beat then, shall we? All right. In 1764, England, Holtz and his gang of merry vampire hunters search for their prey in an abandoned house, where Holtz finds a note from Angelus and realizes they're targeting his family. Meanwhile, Angelus and Darla manage an invitation into his home from his young daughter, Sarah. They bite the girl and Holtz's wife, and as a baby cries in the background, they rock, paper, scissors to decide who gets to eat it. <laughs> Holtz returns home to find his wife and daughter dead. At the Hyperion, Angel watches over Darla and her baby bump as she sleeps. He puts his hand on her belly and she wakes, asking if he's going to do it, or will she? Echoing the conversation. Echoing the conversation about who eats the baby. Which is a nice piece of of intertextuality Mm -hmm. there. It feels as though the flashback we got wasn't completely disassociated from the episode. It feels as though the flashback was... Darla's dream, that Mm -hmm. it was Darla's memory, that Uh, she is drawing this connection. And that anchors the flashback a little more directly into the episode as a whole. I think that it does. Although when we come back and we have that reflection to, do you eat the baby or do I? Mm -hmm. Like, 
what is she talking about? Is she talking about killing the baby, which she has already yes. tried a number of times? So she's, obviously she knows she can't do it. She's 100% talking about killing the baby. So after it's born, who's going to kill this baby? Well, not necessarily after discussion? it's born. Mm-hmm. I think that she is now in the loving bosom of the investigators, and sure. she's confident <laughs> that Wesley and Fred yes. will figure out some way of dealing with this this child. I guess so, but it, it just doesn't feel like a, a natural reflection. I think it's a little bit confusing. It is, and it's a little stagey, yes. too. It, it mm-hmm. definitely works as the last line of the cold open, Yeah, but it doesn't necessarily work as just a line in the episode. Yeah. Let me ask you this. We have this extended flashback to Holtz and to Angel and Darla, and there are two things which strike me about mm-hmm. this cold open. The first is that Angel and Darla are darker here than we have perhaps ever seen them. Yes. Mm-hmm. The discussion over who kills the baby right. feels as though it's getting very close to a line that we do not cross in well, Buffy or in Angel. The last time we saw these two together, you know, of course it was in the narrative timeline much later than this because Angel had his soul, but it was about he saved a baby and sure. that grossed Darla out. You exactly. Know? So, um, so I mean, I think that in the moment where he saves the baby, where she wants him to eat the baby and he can't do it, indicates that this is perhaps something with which they are completely comfortable from sure. their vampire without a soul days. So um, so I think that we have we have nodded toward this before, but we've never gone explicitly to that line where we're actually seeing it happen. Well, and we're not explicitly seeing it happen in this episode either, but we're, we're getting enough. awfully close to it. When you hear the it. baby crying it's, and they're talking about who gets to kill it. It's extremely yeah. dark. Yeah. The other question that I have about the cold open, I guess, is this. To what degree is this episode more interested in Holtz than it is in anyone else. I'm not sure enough of a degree. Really? I think that Holtz is probably one of the strongest elements in this thing, although Holtz is spinning his wheels and doing exposition for the entire thing, so there is that. He is, but but he also feels, you know, somewhat protagonistic. Yeah, he does. Not least of all, because here he is on the back foot. Here he is being challenged. This is, in a very powerful sense, his inciting incident in the cold open. This Mm -hmm. is just... Another day at work yeah. for Angelus and Darla. But for Holtz, this is the moment. This is the defining moment of his entire existence. Exactly. Now his existence is about nothing but vengeance. I think we're very much on the same page that, that Holtz is a good character who is put to effective use throughout the season. He's going to get a little out in the weeds later in yeah. the season because, mm-hmm. of course, we have an entire season's worth of story to tell. So mm-hmm. we have to slow him down a little right. bit. And those stories aren't always the most effective. Mm-hmm. But here, I think he's a genuinely vibrant and unusual presence yeah. in the Buffyverse. I mean, he is effectively the Slayer. Yes. But rather than being fueled by magical prophecy and a, and a bloodline that goes back generations, he's fueled by vengeance and rage. Yeah. But we don't allow that for a moment to interfere with his competence. Mm-hmm. That's That's strong, strong stuff. But I feel as though Holtz, as a focal point in this episode, detracts somewhat from... Angel and from Darla and from the investigators and from the unborn child. Yeah, I feel like the Wolferman Hart stuff distracts from Holtz and Angel and Darla. Sure, I that's, that that's also true. That, for me, honestly, is the real problem with the episode. This um, may be the least Angel that we've ever seen in an episode of yes. Angel. <laughs> Maybe he was busy that week. But I we're no introducing idea, yeah. this broader landscape. We're mm-hmm. introducing this idea of factions within Wolferman Hart, yes. certainly, which is mm-hmm. interesting and has a great deal of narrative potential. We're kind of formalizing that, I suppose. We've always had a sense that there's mm-hmm. infighting oh, within Wolferman 
Wolfram and Hart that there's a a contest of politics within mm-hmm. Wolfram and Hart. But now we're seeing that no, those are formalized lines to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. But we're also getting the sense of other factions out there in the world. Yeah. That's strong. Mm-hmm. I think that's beneficial to Angel's sense of its own world. But there is a lot of a lot of introductory material in this episode that doesn't necessarily feel like it goes anywhere terribly much and yeah. is in the end primarily used to emphasize how badass Holtz is. Yeah, it is, which also raises other questions, but I think we'll ask those questions when we get yes. there. <laughs> Back from credits, Sajan is schooling Holtz on 200 years of world history in his dirt floor dungeon, which is lit with torches because all the electrical outlets are used for multiple television monitors showing a highlight reel of war and destruction. Holtz is a man with focus, though, and wants to know where he can find Angelus and Darla. Sajan flirts with him a little bit, tells him everything will happen when the time is right, then sweeps out of the place like Beyonce heading into intermission. <laughs> so, Sajan. Yes. We've talked about this trope. I think we can call it a trope now. Yes. In, in Buffy and Angel. The, the ironically the, modern demon. Yes. yes. This mm-hmm. this underplayed, undercut, understated yes. take on the, the demon antagonist. I think this is my favorite version of that. Yeah, no, it absolutely is. I like Sajan a lot. And I think part of it is because with a lot of these demons, that character se- seems to be just there so that we can have the laugh. But there's there's more going on with Sajan. I feel there like really he has his own motivations, his own understandings. And I believe him as the 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 somewhat, in a weird way, affable modern demon. You no, know? see, I think that's a deliberate and interesting contrast here yeah. because Sajan looks like the mm-hmm. demon. Yeah. But he is much more like a recognizably modern character exactly than Holtz is Holtz mm-hmm. is 100% human of and yet time, because yeah. he is a man out of time mm-hmm. and because he is fueled by this unearthly vengeance there's there's an interesting disparity there yeah. so so leaning on Sajan's humanity yes. for want of a better word mm-hmm. leaning on his kind of mundanity mm-hmm. I think really emphasizes just how dangerous Holtz is mm-hmm. it definitely does because he's because Sajan is undercut by this humor but Holtz is never humorous yeah. Holtz is never anything but a roiling bag of vengeance but brilliant for mm-hmm. that yeah gorgeously no, absolutely. performed really nicely I wouldn't written. want Holtz to yeah. have have humor to him at this sure. point because I think it would completely undercut everything about him that is so incredibly dangerous at the Hyperion, Darla and Angel are going over old times when Wesley and the gang come in with the latest from the Niazian Scrolls. Turns out the dreaded Troclon isn't a person, it's a confluence of events, including Angel and Darla and the baby. Darla says that something is protecting the baby because she can't kill it no matter how hard she tries. The investigators discuss all the ways they can kill it once it's born, but Angel puts his foot down. No one is beheading the baby, and anyone who doesn't like that can just leave. Cordy agrees to Angel's demands, but punches Darla in the face, because technically that's not hurting the baby. But apparently being cold-cocked can jumpstart labor, which is something I wish I'd known in my 38th week, because Darla starts to wail and clutch her stomach. I want to talk about Darla. Yes. I want to talk about the genius that is Darla in this episode. And we have to acknowledge something of a textual break here. This isn't quite the Darla that we've seen before. Not even the Darla quite that we saw last week. Yeah. This is, and again, we talked about this last week in Offspring. Uh This is my favorite Darla. I love her. fantastic throughout Mm -hmm. this episode. Wry and snarky and smart. 
And she's focused. Not part of the team. Like, this is the thing. She doesn't just become part of the team and is like, yes, I'm on your side now. She still has her own motivations yeah. and she is still a monster. <laughs> she is, yes. I, I like very much that beat where Angel says anyone who doesn't like it can leave and she yes, starts to walk exactly. out of the room and he just restrains her with an arm. <laughs> not you. <laughs> because the restraining of mm-hmm. her with that arm speaks to an intimacy that yeah. we almost never see between Angel and Darla. They were supposed to be together for decades. Uh, for centuries. Yeah. I mean, they were like 150 years they were together. And yeah. yet, it almost never feels as though they have this deep kind of intuitive understanding of each other. Yeah. But that moment is is really strong. No, they do. They have this really nice intimacy of people who have known each other literally forever. Though if yeah. Angel and Darla suffer because of the overstuffed elements in yes. this plot, the investigators really suffer. Mm-hmm. We get almost nothing from Cordelia, almost nothing from Gunn, almost nothing from Fred. Yeah. Wesley gets a little more to do for baffling reasons. Yeah, I guess which we'll, we'll get address to in a moment. <laughs> But it's it's a little disappointing that we get so little from Cordelia. But I like her taking the stand and I like her. I like her punching Darla, Darla in the face. Yep. I like the fact that she's putting that training to use. We've been seeing her downstairs <laughs> practicing the fight. I think punching a pregnant vampire in the face is a great place to start. That's the first line of your resume. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's always stage one in the couch to 5K kill vampires <laughs> app. It's punch a pregnant vampire in the face. At Wolfram and Hart, Cyril, the world's stupidest mailroom guy, gives Lila a video he found of her and Angel making out on Angel's desk. She threatens him appropriately, and once he's done wetting himself, he tells her that Gavin Park's exterminators don't kill bugs, they plant them. Lila rushes out to find Gavin in a windowless room gathering transcripts of Angel's activities from the last week. Lila takes the transcripts from Gavin and discovers an unidentified pregnant female in the mix, which she then identifies as Darla. This takes the longest amount of time that it is possible to to apprehend. No, I'm still watching this scene. This is the slowest scene <laughs> to the least effect yes. that I've seen in a good long while. None of it is bad, exactly, yeah. and I kind of would appreciate an entire episode of Wolfram and Hart Office Politics. Yeah, no, I, I like Lila, and I like Gavin, and I like the way that they're fighting. Mm-hmm. I like the fact that Gavin's plans with all of the, you know, um, regulations and paperwork for Angel, you know, ended with this, you know, planting yeah, of the bugs and the kind cameras. of trivial and obvious, and yeah. we're calling back to it now weeks and weeks and weeks after it was established, and he hasn't apparently been putting it to any particular use. The frustration for me in in this sequence in particular is Gavin. Yeah. We see no echo here of his behavior in Billy. Mm -hmm. His relationship with Lila is exactly what it was prior to his (laughs) contamination by the malevolent force that is Billy. Right. And I wish that we'd seen... Something. I wish that we had seen a harder Gavin Park. I wish yeah. that we had seen a colder Lila. Or maybe a, a somewhat flinchy Lila. Either. You know, if Gavin makes a sudden move and Lila flinches, I mean, that could or be an interesting part of that continuity. If he had realized mm-hmm. that, that he had crossed the line, if he's carrying just a fragment of, of guilt right. at this point, that would have given him a certain humanity. But it feels as though we've reset back to their initial positions. Yeah, as though what happened between them was not terribly significant. Right. Well, it's completely overlooked, in fact. Mm -hmm. What made Lila and Lindsay work when they really did work Mm -hmm. is that 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 personal engagement. Yes. It wasn't just a business relationship. Mm -hmm. There was a personal 
It was very brother sister, you know, a rivalry. Yeah, it was it was that rivalry. But there always seemed to be respect and kind of a strange sort of warped affection between them. Like if you imagine if Lindsay had been the one to be taken over by Billy and had beaten Lila like that, that we would have seen that on Christian Kane's face. But in this, we've just wiped the whiteboard clean and it's as though it never happened. That's not to say that Christian Kane is a superior actor to Daniel Day Kim. I think they're both exemplary. The the character of Lindsay is is much more fleshed out. Much more texture to Lindsay than we've had from Gavin today, arguably than we'll ever have from Gavin Park, honestly. (laughs) Which is a shame because it's underutilizing Daniel Day Kim, who is fantastic. Exactly. And I miss that that personal entanglement Mm -hmm. between the two because what we're left with is this. It's bickering. Exactly. This parade of of banter Mm -hmm. that doesn't really get to the heart of the issue at all. I'm a little disappointed that the reveal of of the bugs in the Hyperion is Mm -hmm. as trite and as trivial yeah. as it is. And I don't necessarily think that we need to motivate that reveal because it is so insubstantial with this voyeuristic sex tape yes. of Angel and Lila. I don't know why we're calling back to that now. I don't know why it's significant. We Well, we have a ton of stuff in this episode that has absolutely no significance whatsoever, but we are spending a lot of time on it. We certainly so, do. And yeah. Mailroom Boy is perhaps the... the one of the Biggest worst, of yeah, yes. one of the most egregious <laughs> examples of that. At the Hyperion, Darla's contractions are 20 minutes apart, which puts her in the early stages of labor. The gang tries to figure out where they can take her, as most of the more reputable hospitals don't actually admit <laughs> vampires. But if they can steal the equipment, maybe they don't need a hospital. It's a solid plan. There you go. You can't argue with it, I guess. guess. In the hallways of Wolferman Hart, Lila, Linwood, and Gavin speak openly about how dreadful this whole Darla thing is, while an eavesdropping Cyril sneaks away to leave a voicemail for the demon Tarfall. He tells his master that what he has foreseen has come to pass. Yes, this is the first of several kind of veiled references to other forces yes. in this particular corner of the Buffyverse. Mm-hmm. This one is not going to come to anything? No, this is it. This is the last we hear of Tarfall. This is so, the last we see of Cyril. And, and there's something to that that I kind of like. I like that we gesture toward it mm-hmm. more than feeling compelled to build in a structural element to support it. But when we're already dealing with the introduction of a number of new factions mm-hmm. and a number of new perspectives, right? this feels unnecessary. Well, and the other thing that we have kind of putting a lot of pressure on a very weak point in this whole narrative is this idea that Wesley has these rare scrolls, which are the only things that have the answer (laughs) to what is happening. Nobody looks at Darla and says, yeah, yeah, no, we heard about that. We thought that was going to actually be a thing that would happen is this vampire birth, right? And I understand they didn't have vampire Twitter, you know, back in the day, but they had bulletin boards. I mean, apparently all of these people are connected, all of these vampires, and we're going to see like other, it's not even Tarfall. It's like some other guy who saw this happening. We've got all these vampires who are like, oh, the miracle baby, the miracle birth, blah, blah, blah. How in the world does nobody else see this? We've had shamans, we've had witch doctors, we've had everybody from all over the world. Nobody can see this coming. This was something that took the Wolferman Hart psychic by surprise. And the Wolferman Hart psychic has seen some stuff, right? Yeah. The problem here is not that... It's it's necessarily inconsistent. I mean, we're dealing with magic. People can discover information. It's possible that if you're dealing with psychics and you're dealing with magic at Wolfram and Hart, that that information can be known once it is known. That mm-hmm. is, that once Wesley and Fred have deciphered the Niazian scrolls, the information is then in the world in a way that can be picked up 
magically. Right, but Darla has been running around pregnant, going from witch doctor to shaman, some yes. of whom I'm certain have an internet connection. Perhaps, but none of whom I'm certain survived the encounter with Darla. Oh, that is that is entirely possible. I did get the sense that she walked away from I, them. I think she, she generally tidies up after herself. See. No, yes. no, no, that's that's true. It just, it feels like it undercuts both Wesley's competence and the competence of Wolfram and Hart. I don't necessarily think that it... it conceptually undercuts mm-hmm. their competence. I think in the execution, it undercuts their competence because it is all so confused. Yeah, We're never sure who knows what and why. It feels outlandish mm-hmm. that Gavin Park didn't recognize Darla yeah. through the recordings. Right. He should know about Darla. He exactly. should have all the necessary information. Because he's but the guy who does his homework. Exactly. Like, that's that guy. Exactly. But we stumble into the reveal. Yeah. Which is a little forced mm-hmm. and required only so that we can motivate the entire Wolfram and Hart arc in this particular episode. So the whole thing feels very muddy. And there's something to that that I almost like. Mm-hmm. I like that the world suddenly feels so much larger, so much more dangerous. It makes me feel as though Darla, for the first time, really is the focal point of a great deal of attention Mm -hmm. because oftentimes in Buffy in Angel we have the prophecy we have something terrible is coming but don't worry we're the only ones who know about it and we're the only ones who are going to think about it or or do anything about it at all here we're seeing great forces move ponderously into action Mm -hmm. because of Darla and there's something to that that I like yeah but at the same time the execution leaves me somewhat cold, leaves me somewhat removed from it. Yeah, I think it it undercuts a lot of the other stuff that we're doing in the bigger parts of the story. So that for is me, it doesn't quite work. certainly fair, yes. It feels as though we ought not to introduce both Holtz and this idea of, of you know, underworld civil war. Yeah, yeah. Which is mm-hmm. essentially what we're leading up to here. It seems to me that trying to introduce both of those elements... Into the episode where Darla is apparently having the babies, yes. we may just have too much to do for for forty four minutes here. Yeah, I think it. I think it is, and I also it just feels kind of uh, wobbly in its construction. Yeah. Back in England, nine years after the death of his family, Holtz is getting pissed on ale when Sajan the demon apparates and offers Holtz a chance at vengeance if he's willing to travel two hundred years into the future. The only catch: when the time comes for revenge, he must show them no mercy. As previously mentioned, Holtz is the protagonist of this episode. Holtz is absolutely the protagonist of this episode. Which is something that you can do in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. We Mm -hmm. have seen episodes in which Spike is the protagonist, or is is, is at least more protagonistic than he normally is. 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 the active force, is the thing that is moving things forward. Holtz's presence here is the thing that is making this episode have its momentum. Everything else feels like spinning wheels. And we've had big bads take possession of the narrative before and drive events forward, forcing our protagonists are heroes to be more reactive Mm -hmm. that would have worked again i just think trying to do both right might just be too much i I think it's it's a lot it's a good scene though it is a good scene it is fun at the hospital the gang wheels darla into an empty operating theater at a teaching hospital the contractions have stopped and it appears to be false labor but they got an ultrasound machine and a few hours to kill so why not take a peek under the hood okay (laughs) so let's talk about this let's talk about this where did Wesley learn this? Well, maybe 
in Watcher School that I don't know. I have yes, no idea. No, I am certain that Giles too received extensive, you know, Medical OBGYN training. training. Exactly. And this is the thing, like any ultrasound tech, and if there are any out there who just were like, whatever, they go to school for years to learn how to do this, handle this equipment, how to turn it on, how to make and it work, how to read it. Yes. And this isn't Wesley's ability to learn and research coming into play mm-hmm. here. This is a pre-existing skill set because he observes that it has been a long while since he has looked at an ultrasound. Wesley, <laughs> when did you look at an ultrasound? Did he have a pregnant wife out there somewhere? I'm did desperately trying to remember if there has yeah. been any hint at all of Wesley having extensive medical training. I don't think we've ever had any of that discussion. And, and he's most, pretty young, too. I yes, mean, when he showed up in Sunnydale, he was, he was a, a baby. baby. Exactly. <laughs> so this feels like a weird, forceful intrusion yeah. into Wesley's character. And what's all the more baffling is that it's completely unnecessary. Mm-hmm. Because Fred is standing right there. Fred, who has, you know, a lot of scientific experience, who understands technology, who understands how things work, um, you know... It would be believable from Fred that maybe she had had some kind of background in that. I would have had no trouble at all. Exactly. Believing, essentially, that Fred is, in fact, a medical doctor, too. Exactly. It would have given Fred something to do. Exactly. But instead, Wesley just suddenly has this this weird and very precise skill set that seems broadly incompatible with his other skill. What does a rogue demon hunter need? With a knowledge of, of obstetrics and gynecology. I have absolutely no idea, unless he was going to like specialize in demon obstetrics, but he think he would have called that out as soon I, as Darla came in pregnant. I would have bought this yeah. from Gunn before I, know, I buy seriously. it from Wesley. <laughs> and I think, too, that it, it kind of undercuts Wesley's character, because we're doing this thing with Wesley now, uh-huh. where he is darker, where he's feeling the burden of leadership. And we'll yeah. see that most clearly, I think, right at the end of the episode. But having him be the one to also offer the exposition yeah. doesn't really give him the opportunity to to lead. It doesn't mm-hmm. give him the opportunity to react. He should be the counterpoint to Angel throughout this episode. Yeah. And he isn't because he's the one who has to explain that it's a boy. Exactly. Well, and I mean, maybe like even Cordelia, when she went into the, when she was pregnant with the, the 12 demon babies, pregnant. she has been pregnant. She was under some kind of mystical spell at the time that she was in there, you know, having the ultrasound. Maybe oh, there was recovered some kind memories of, like Xander yeah, and his like, military training. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, sure. I'll believe that. I mean, Wesley was in the room <laughs> with her when they did that ultrasound, but that is the only other time we've seen Wesley anywhere near ultrasound tech. And in that moment, when the doctor, is doing the ultrasound Wesley's not like well here let me take that over I actually have training (laughs) like there was none of that so we have no hint of this and yet you know we have other people who could you know believably show that kind of expertise I think it should absolutely Fred is our go to and Fred has nothing to do in this episode give her a little something exactly Fred Fred is our go to repository of arcane knowledge at this Mm -hmm. point Wesley is our go to repository of specific and practical knowledge he knows how to fight the demon he knows how to kill the monster by all means Give mm-hmm. Wesley the exposition about the Troclon. Give yes. Wesley the exposition about about the coming nightmare that exactly. is that is about to descend upon us all. But give Fred the ultrasound. Absolutely. Why wouldn't you? Do I know. That? I know. My uncle was a was an OBGYN, and I worked in his you know place in the summers or whatever. Fred it doesn't is, even matter. Fred is so mutable at this point. You wouldn't have to even give a line of explanation, right? Because we haven't defined yeah. her backstory as completely as we have defined Wesley's, in which there really isn't a whole lot of room for him to have this kind of training. I would you have know? no trouble with. Fred knowing this. Yeah, no, I think it would have been fine. In Sajan's dungeon, Holtz is losing his patience. Why can't he just kill Angelus now? 
He reaches for Sajan's neck in frustration and his hands go right through the demon, who explains that things are complicated and there is a timeline to stick to. Sajan puts on a glamour to look human and leads Holtz out to meet the people who are going to help him. It's interesting that Sajan is incorporeal. Yeah. It's interesting that, that he cannot apparently interact with the physical world at all. Mm-hmm. Because we did see him smoking a cigarette. No, he does smoke. And he does throw the cloak at Holtz. <laughs> and I don't necessarily want to be that guy. It turns yeah. out I am kind of that guy. You're, you're, you're totally that guy, but that's okay. When you have established literally in the previous beat, not even a previous scene, not even a previous episode, yeah. literally in the previous beat, that Sajan can't be touched or touch things. Yes. And then he throws the cloak at Holtz. Mm-hmm. I don't know what to make of that. And I'm not confident enough in the movement of this episode. I yeah. don't feel secure enough in these narrative hands mm-hmm. to believe that that is intentional. Yeah, I don't quite understand. I mean, it, it appears that he can maybe with the power of his mind affect the physical world, but the physical world cannot affect him. But then if he can affect the physical world, isn't that why he needs Holtz? Isn't that why he brought yeah. Holtz to do I mean, this? No spoilers, but we're going to double down on this in episodes oh, to come. Yeah. But the throwing of the cloak baffles me but we also have i believe him drinking it like bars and stuff in episodes to come so yeah there's i mean not to be totally a a spoiler about it but i mean like i I remember some of those scenes so um yeah sajan's relationship with the physical world i think is muddy at best and it really needs to not be because it is i mean not yet but it will be a vital plot component exactly (laughs) at wolfram and heart linwood kills the psychic who failed to see a pregnant darla coming But it doesn't do a thing for his depression over dropping the ball on this one. Lila reports in, no one knows what the hell is going on. Linwood tells Lila that if the senior partners want to head to roll on this, it's going to be hers. Gavin smirks, but Lila's not giving up. She makes a phone call. This is not good. This this is overwritten. It is overdeveloped. It takes forever. And we're in a room full of people who are, what is this, the Wolferman Hart job fair? They're Apparently. all in there. Like, we have a ton of people it's, who are doing... Look, it's bring your shaman to work day. It's bring your shaman The to HR work department day. thought it would be a good idea, well, but mean, you know, it just stops everyone from working. Right. Well, they're doing lie detector tests, but then some of the questions that people are asking sound like job interview questions, yeah. and they're trying to find out, I guess, why none of these people knew that this was happening. Holland Man managed to do this scene yeah in 10 seconds yeah with a look yeah he didn't have to lay out the threat and make it explicit he didn't have to kill the psychic right right in front of everyone mm-hmm. this is so overblown the the great virtue of wolfram and heart to date has been this kind of very understated and underplayed malevolence right it's it's everybody being afraid of that malevolence is much more powerful than actually seeing it especially in this incredibly strange i mean conference room just crowded with everyone the closest thing that we've ever seen in angel to this moment i think was the death of lee mercer yeah and if you compare those two scenes yeah I mean, there is no comparison. Yeah. The death of Lee Mercer was genuinely shocking and reframed our understanding of Wolfram and Hart. Mm-hmm. And this is, this really is just job for a day at Wolfram and Hart. Yeah. Less is absolutely more when you're talking about threat, when you're talking about danger. Seeing Lila freaked out is all you need because Lila yeah. doesn't freak out, you know? And having Linwood 
make it all explicit. And also, I just don't think the character is there. I don't think the performance Mm -hmm. is there. We've had a number of people step into Holland Manor's shoes since he left behind this veil of tears, whatever that may mean for (laughs) Holland Manor's. But this guy just doesn't hold it for me. No, he really doesn't. He doesn't. It's it's, he feels like he's all talk, you know, and and then we see him, of course, kill the psychic. But Mm -hmm. at that point, you know, it's just. Not least of all, because for some reason, we're in Linwood's POV throughout yeah, this entire scene. And right. I don't know or care about this guy. This is this side of the yeah. story is Lila's story. Imagine Why aren't we in her POV? Exactly. But imagine Lila walking into that room, right? Exactly. And they're cleaning up the dead body. And she would be like, isn't that the psychic? You know, and Linwood. And then Linwood can get his. Well, he didn't see that coming. He didn't see that coming. Exactly. Like that, you know, Um, and and that's all we need. Less is so much more. I think in this, we're trying to be funny where we have demons taking lie detector tests and it doesn't really work for any of its intent. I don't think so. In a sad apartment, a shirtless, I don't know, shaman, witch doctor, grad student in a turban and a loincloth puts his hand over an open flame and produces a crumpled up piece of paper. I think this is supposed to be impressive. His cell phone rings and he answers it, says pretty much nothing and hangs up, then reaches his hand out. In about the same time as it would have taken to just walk across the room and pick it up, a sword leaning against the wall starts to shake and then flies into his hand. Well, he's definitely going to be significant at the end of the episode. Well, I mean, it's obviously this is the person that Lila just called on the phone, right? Well, presumably the the lines of narrative are so tangled at this point that I don't, again, I don't have confidence that I'm supposed to draw that conclusion. (laughs) We should acknowledge at this point that... Quickening and Lullaby, Mm -hmm. next week's episode, kind of work as a two-part story. Mm -hmm. And perhaps it would have made more sense to look at both episodes together, Mm -hmm. though. I feel as though looking at both episodes together would have just been interminable. (laughs) I think we kind of have to distill out Quickening so that we can look at Lullaby with a little more clarity. I think Mm -hmm. Lullaby is definitely going to benefit from from that objectivity. Yes. But there are a number of elements introduced in this episode which are not then resolved later Mm -hmm. in this episode. And a number of elements introduced in this episode which we'll just never see again. Cyril is never going to come back. Yeah. We are never going to see that character again. Yeah. There's, I don't know what the point of Cyril was. Odd choice to spend 20 minutes on his backstory though, right? (laughs) So we can have the joke about press the three for the demon lord of pain, Tarfall, you know, I mean. Pretty solid joke. It's it's a good joke, but like (laughs) it doesn't, it doesn't hold up. Like all of this doesn't hold up. In the operating theater, all of the many minutes Wesley has trained in ultrasound technology pays off and they discover that the baby is human, a boy. But don't get too happy. The audience bay is full of vampires beholding the miracle child. I'm not comfortable with this exposition either. Mm-hmm. There are demons who look human. Yeah. There are demons who look so human, there is no way that you could tell on an ultrasound. Well, I think if you have like special ultrasound training, which obviously Wesley does, that you can see the presence of a soul in a human looking thing (laughs) and then presume that it must then be human. Yeah, this is an echo of the assertion in last week's episode that because the baby has a heartbeat, that means Mm -hmm. the baby is human. And I mean, I see what the show is doing. I understand the narrative necessity right now for us to believe that the baby is an ordinary, ensouled human being. Right. But asserting it based on the absence of evidence... Right. ...again makes me feel insecure in the narrative. Had Wesley waved a magical talisman over Darla's stomach, 
then I would have bought it completely. Right. It's like the thing that you wave over the stomach, and if it goes sideways, then it's a boy, and if it goes right. front and back, it's a and demon. maybe right. it circles. It. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> then it's a demon. So if we had something like that, or even if Fred, again, had been the one with a scientific background, and if Fred had just said, I think it's human. No, then no I would science. have believed that. Science is not going to cut it here because we've already established too many right. counterproofs. No, that's it true. needs to be a magical solution. It needs to be solution. a magical what's it? Yes. Because magic is the only way within the bounds of this fiction that we can be 100% sure mm-hmm. that that the suggestion that the show is making, the exposition that we're being handed is reliable. Right. And if it had been a magical test instead of an ultrasound in a hospital, you know, then I then wouldn't have had a problem with Wesley Wesley's, doing it either. Exactly. Wesley's competence could have absolutely That said though, I really love the entire sequence in the operating theater. I think it's beautifully done. We've got Rai and snarky Darla, who is mm-hmm. obviously having a tough time with this. Yes. We've got the investigators rallied as a Greek chorus just to offer whatever necessary exposition or perspective we need to move forward. And Angel, though he is so far on the periphery that the show should probably be renamed, yes. is, I think, pretty great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So all of it works for me. And I love the way that it's shot. Too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the use of the audience gallery yes. is a little tropey, a little cliched at this point in, in this kind of storytelling, mm-hmm. but it really works. I, I don't like all the vampires. Mm-hmm. While Wolfram and Hart had no idea any of this, they have the best psychics, the best of everything. They know everything that happens. They couldn't see this coming. Mm-hmm. Um, Wesley has the Niazian scrolls, which apparently are the only things that have the answers to this mystery. He can't understand what's going on. And yet... Vampires had time to organize, behold the miracle child. They know everything that's happening. The demon Tarfall. In this, they they reference the demon Ulthar. So we have like all of this stuff and it just, it doesn't make sense how nobody can see this coming except everybody who totally saw this coming. Well, we're talking about different spheres here. I mean, it may be that there are demonic prophecies that Wesley's never heard of. I mean, we're dealing with the filtering of information down and we're used to the investigators or in Sunnydale, the Scoobies Mm -hmm. being somewhat on the back foot when it comes to this kind of research. It's oftentimes the case that the antagonist knows more than the protagonist and that should be the case. Mm -hmm. I see what you're saying about the specifics that if we hadn't made such a big deal about the Niazian prophecies being the only answer and that this is unforeseen and we've had shaman after witch doctor after voodoo priest saying oh my god I cannot believe this is happening. Which is some lazy writing when we introduced the Niazian prophecies because it's too easy when you're writing a script of this type to say oh these are the only ones. This is the the only relic that will give us this information. Mm -hmm. It's a relic that will give us this information. Mm -hmm. That's narratively as powerful, but it doesn't sound as good in dialogue. It doesn't sound as significant and as important. So I completely see what you're saying there. But the introduction of these warring factions, Mm -hmm. the idea suddenly that the investigators are caught between so many different powerful and unknowable factions, Mm -hmm. that there are demons out there with legions of vampires, apparently, ready to pursue the miracle child. Mm -hmm. That... That does work for me at at an abstract level. Mm -hmm. I like very much the idea that the world has suddenly, through no fault of their own, become that much that much larger and that much more dangerous. We're really raising the stakes here. Yeah, I don't know. To me, it feels a lot like the Wolfram and Hart stuff. It's just it's too much. Uh, Making Wolfram and Hart one player in a Mm -hmm. larger game, I think, could work. But in order for that to be compelling for us, we need to see Wolfram and Hart's competence Mm -hmm. again. We need to see them as a major player and not an incidental player. Mm -hmm. So there is, yes, you're right. The execution is not as clear and as crisp as it should be. 
but there are elements to the story that, at the that conceptual I really level like. yeah. that, that might have worked had they been well, executed a little better. And mm-hmm. if the rest of the story had been good, yeah, I'd be perfectly happy with the vampire showing up to in the just operating whistle theater past it, because sure, this yeah. scene itself, I think, mm-hmm. is actually pretty solid. good. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Holtz and Sajan wander the streets of Los Angeles, talking about how people never really change. <laughs> they go to a dingy gym full of grappler demons. They will be Holtz's minions. They're not smart, but what they lack in intellect, they make up for with stupidity. So it should all work out fine. So this is the third scene in Holtz's unfolding origin yes. story. It's good. It's yeah. good. I mm-hmm. like Sanjan. I like the the chemistry yeah. between Sanjan and Holtz. I think that really works. I like this idea that, you know, certain things have changed. There's technology. There are cars. There's all this kind of stuff. AM. Exactly. <laughs> but, you know, and again, for a demon who can't have a physical experience, it seems to me like the Thai food would be the last thing on his list sure. of cool things in the new no, world. I think but... one can abstractly appreciate Thai food. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Just Particularly from, if you, if at you 2 a.m. smell it, maybe. Just, just knowing that you can. Knowing that you can there is you really go. what the important thing is. Um, but I do like this this discussion about how people at their, at their core, who people are, that never changes. Yes, and we're anchoring Holtz in a very personal experience. Mm-hmm. We have the, in some sense, unnecessary and in some sense... Yes, a little a little Angel yeah. Season 1 mm-hmm. perspective on the homeless guy in the alley, which speaks to Holtz's motivation, I think, in a very direct and a very human way. I'm not sure at this point that we're supposed to be siding with Holtz, but I've got to tell you, I'm kind of siding with Holtz. Oh, no, I love Holtz this, in this, this whole thing. This humanist perspective yeah. versus Angel's existentialist perspective, mm-hmm. I find fascinating. Angel fights because he chooses to fight. Holtz fights because he wants it over. Yeah. Holtz fights because he actually wants to make the world better. Not someday, not in a, in a grand good versus evil sense, but in a right now I can fix the things that I can fix kind of way. Well, and that's powerful. Right. I mean, I think that was Holtz when he was just a vampire hunter. But now Holtz is not about making anything better. Holtz is purely See, about vengeance. I don't think that's true. It is purely about vengeance, certainly. But it is vengeance in the pursuit of a greater good. The inclusion of the homeless guy, I think, really... Mm-hmm anchors that for me yeah for for Holtz's motivation I mm-hmm. think that that he's an interesting and complex character and we're going to see him lose himself yeah to a certain degree and and have seen him lose himself to a certain degree but there is still something within him I think that speaks to an immediate and greater good a utilitarian kind of good which I appreciate and honestly if this show was Holtz the Vampire Slayer I'd be in Uh, no I mean and the thing with Holtz is that he really is the hero you know I mean he's the one his family was brutally murdered by these people you know so for him wanting to make the world a safer and better place for him I mean essentially he is Buffy yes I mean we do need to seal his motivation very tightly Mm -hmm. lest this become a false conflict. Right. Mm-hmm. Because we get perilously close to that at the end of the episode. Yes. Why doesn't Angel just tell him that he has a soul? Why doesn't yeah. Angel just tell him, hey, actually, things are different. I'll take whatever tests you want. I have suffered for 200 years. I am a champion for the forces of good. Here is a phone number for the powers that be. They exactly. will speak in my favor. <laughs> Go ahead and give him a call. Here are my references. If yes. you can talk through a problem then it's not a real conflict, which is why we have to drive Holtz as hard as we do. Well, and I also think that, you know, he's out for vengeance, which I fully believe is his motivation. He wants to kill the people who killed his family. And that in itself, whether or not Angel has been good ever since then, is irrelevant because Angel, as Angelus, did kill his family. That's the side Mm -hmm. that seals the conflict. But the other side of Holtz, the actual... 
wanting you know, the greater good. Yeah, he is. He is, in his own sense, a champion too, and mm-hmm. that is what makes him. Yeah, absolutely see, I, compelling. I think he was a champion. I think he is out for vengeance. I don't think that those two things are mutually exclusive. I don't think that mm-hmm. in any sphere other than Angel. I mean, he has made this pact with Sajan, so yeah. he, he's locked. He can't show mercy. I there will are show all no kinds mercy. of mm-hmm. restrictions here upon his behavior. But it doesn't. His his desire for vengeance doesn't stop him from being a good person. I believe mm-hmm. in other areas of his life. You know, he can feel pity and empathy and humanity for the homeless guy in the alley. Right. Because he has not been turned into something else. I he has know. not been dehumanized by mm-hmm. this desire for vengeance. At least not yet. Not at the moment. Yes. <laughs> not at the moment. In the operating theater, the vampires attack, but are interrupted by the bizarre entrance of the half-naked grad student who is immediately killed and apparently also narratively pointless. One of the vamps is all blah, 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 the miracle child, blah, 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 as foreseen by Ulthar. They want to kill the humans to feed the mother. Darla's okay with that plan. Darla is... So good. <laughs> Love Darla. So good. Yes. Throughout this entire sequence. Mm-hmm. You're right. She doesn't in any way compromise who she is. Yes. But she is fluid and adaptable. It it works for me. I absolutely love it. And I think Julie Benz kills it in this episode. And also to see her, and this is perhaps a, an unpleasant observation to make because mm-hmm. it shouldn't be as notable as it is, but television is television and television in 2001 was definitely television in 2001 but to see julie bands without makeup yeah to see her hair disheveled to see her looking i mean by the standards of network tv rough looking as rough as julie bands is gonna get yeah yet not having that reflect on her core power and agency and 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 everything yes we can have women looking sick in Mm -hmm. shows like Angel we can have them looking quote unquote bad yeah but that's usually accompanied by a complete loss of agency right right when when Cordy was covered in boils and all of that stuff and even then I mean I'm sorry she's Charisma Carpenter covered in boils still really really pretty you know Um, (laughs) well and Julie Bantz is still luminous obviously no she's obviously right presented in the same way that Darla is usually presented but the fact that we don't compromise her strength we don't compromise who she is with any of that exactly she's not just this this woman in labor and that is her entire identity she remains darla and i really like that in wolfram and hart gavin is sharing blueprints of the hyperion with a tactical team preparing to go in and get darla and lila shows up with a specialist in paranormal obstetrics who can deliver the baby and then dissect it along with the mother we're cutting back and forth from the Mm -hmm. operating theater to wolfram and hart and it just doesn't hang together. It just doesn't hang together. Again, this scene goes on too long. Yeah. It just runs too long for the amount of information that we're being given. And there's just not enough spark there. I have never missed Lindsay McDonald more. Oh, no, I can certainly understand that. But we also (laughs) have... kind of always miss Lindsay McDonald, just just in my daily life. Just a little bit, right? I just always kind of miss him. (laughs) But we also have this moment where we have this, you know, this obstetrics, paranormal obstetrics doctor come in, right? And he's the specialist. And this, I think, is supposed to be the guy that Lila actually called. So... When we see the grad student getting the phone call, when we see the grad student go in and get immediately killed, that's supposed to be like a aha twist, I yeah. think. It, it could be. It doesn't No, that's work. a completely passable interpretation. It is also completely passable to say that, no, Lila called Lila made a couple of student. phone calls. Sure. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And we're introducing another new character mm-hmm. here who, again, a potentially interesting character, yeah. but mm-hmm. underdeveloped, yeah. undercooked. There's no space for this guy mm-hmm. in this episode. So... 
all of these these warring factions, all of this this new conflict, it's just not being anchored properly. Right. And we're, we're spending a lot of time on a lot of things right. that pull away from the central narrative movement of this story. And the last thing that you want in the world is for Wolfram and Hart, of all people, of all businesses, yeah. of all entities, of all factions to feel like they're throwing spaghetti at the wall. Yeah, exactly. But exactly. That's where we are now. Yeah, no, it's 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 bad. At the operating theater, it turns out crazy goes bone deep because the zealot vampires are also planning to disembowel Darla and eat her eyeballs once she's given birth. So she's back on Team Angel. Fred threatens the baby with a knife, but when she calls her own bluff, a fight ensues. They manage to get away, but back at the Hyperion, the tactical team has already infiltrated. It's really cute yeah darla switzerlanding herself <laughs> no she's taking sides then, she's well, just hopping back and forth and then changing her mind yeah <laughs> exactly. fred's little uh-huh. faint is yes. good and f- i know it may be a little overwritten mm-hmm. i really like the reveal and i really love the way that julie benz delivers the line vampires yes. I actually have excellent hearing exactly. it's, it's just great <laughs> i do have a small problem with this which mm-hmm. is there are like a dozen vampires yeah just you know a handful of weeks ago we literally saw the investigators take out 100 vampires <laughs> in disharmony. Yes. And the reason that we keep going to demons and to greater supernatural mm-hmm. opposition is that vampires just don't feel like a legitimate threat anymore. Well, you know, if we've spent Fred a lot of time just dismantling them. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So I kind of think, had it not been vampires, yes. this might have been a little more effective. Though, of course, thematically, it has to be vampires. Because the miracle child. Sure. Born of two vampires. In the car, everyone decides to get the hell out of Dodge, but Wesley says they need to go back to the hotel and get the scrolls so they can learn about the child. Again, vampire Twitter was not available at the yes, moment. We haven't seen the Niazian prophecies. Yeah. We've, we've never seen like the physical scrolls in the show. How big do you suppose they are? I don't know. Because would it have killed Wesley to just put them in the glove compartment? Put them in his pocket. Right. Right? I mean, weren't they in like a little scroll, like tin? You is know? is I, that the whole of them? When they took... I is, have, that, is that everything? I have no idea. I have no <laughs> Carry idea. Carry it with you, Wesley. Exactly. <laughs> Keep it in your pocket. You know what? Carry a man bag. Like, would it kill you right. to carry a man bag with the essentials with you at all a times? a lot of watchers do. Exactly. I think that they do. At the Hyperion, Holtz takes out one of the tactical guys in the courtyard while the creepy doctor is creepy in the lobby. Holtz walks into the lobby and wants to know where Angelus is. From the windowless room in Wolfram and Hart, Linwood, Lila, and Gavin watch the television monitors. Linwood gives the order for the team to take out Holtz, and the picture goes staticky. We hear the sounds of screams, and then there's silence on the radio. Angel leaves the gang in the car a few blocks away from the Hyperion. He tells Wesley that if he's not back in a few minutes, they should get Darla somewhere safe. Angel Batmans up the walls and into the Hyperion, where he finds the tactical team dead and bleeding all over his clean floors. The creepy doctor is dead, and he has chicken feet, because apparently David Lynch directed this. I like that touch. The chicken feet? I like the otherworldly weirdness of that? Sure, I'm in. Oh, God. It plays, like, visually, it plays like this is supposed to be some kind of funny joke bit, and I don't know, like... The chicken feet do not work for me at all. I, I thought it, it 
worked. It is very weird. It is very strange. It's certainly unnecessary. Yeah. But it it works pretty well. I'd like to pause for a second to yes. commend the production team on Angel Batmaning up the fire escape. I love that. When really he Batmans, nice effect. it is like my favorite thing. I just love from time to time Angel remembering that he has super. He's a vampire. Right. right. <laughs> like I love those those somewhat inhuman physical movements from him. Yeah. And again, like we have undercut the power of vampires in general, but Angel apparently being an ensouled vampire has like even more superpowers. Yeah, it's not the soul; it's the it's the protagonist badge. It's the protagonist badge, yes. yeah, exactly. Um, so I don't know. Like, I I love when we have these moments where he just very you know slyly drops from the top sure. of a building where he climbs up and flies up. I love seeing that from him. It, and it really yeah, works. I wish we did that a little more often. So here we've arrived at what is essentially the climax because of how Holtz is our protagonist. Yes. This is the climax of the episode and. His his dismantling of the Wolfram and Hart tactical team. Which is pretty cool. I mean, I like that he goes in there on his own and takes out an entire tactical team, which again, Do you need undercuts it? Wolfram and Hart. It, it does. It sells out Wolfram and Hart. It is absolutely what it does. does. Do you need it? Okay. Do you need that moment to believe that Holtz is the baddest of baddest asses? Is as dangerous as he is. I find it a little bit unbelievable to me that Holtz can go in and in a moment like take out an entire <laughs> since we've already team. established a precedent for using batman as a verb right he batmans them but good he batmans them but good but then doesn't hang out to wait for angelus to come back so he can batman all over angelus why does he then leave well we don't have sufficient information yeah. to speculate about yeah. that right now you're absolutely right it's a really interesting piece of composition mm-hmm. i just i don't need lyla and linwood and gavin park yeah all listening and the tech. Yes. Just, just and once again, matters still further. being proven completely incompetent. And why are the, the surveillance devices fritzing out at that particular moment? Yeah. That's never explained, well, except, except that we except want that we dramatic see them, potential. Well, we see them, you know, fritz out in the beginning, you yeah. know, with the guy. So we see again okay, that they are so incompetent, they can't even have. Yes. Even in 2001, this is not difficult technology. Well, and you know what? Veronica There's Mars a radio could have set shack this up in on every corner exactly. in 2001. One, you can completely get your vampire surveillance. They had a special yeah, go to a fries. Exactly. You'll be fine. Exactly. It'll be fine. So narratively, yeah. I understand the the intent here. Uh-huh. And I don't necessarily think that it fails outright. But we do kneecap Wolfram and Hart as a legitimate threat. Oh, at this point. super hard. Yeah. And that's always a danger when you're introducing a new primary antagonist mm-hmm. that you want to make him seem powerful. But I don't think that... Through the writing and through the performance, I think that Holtz has already been established. Yeah. I don't need him to be tested in right. this way. Exactly. Particularly against mooks that took forever to set up. And, well, here's the thing. If you cut the Wolfram and Hart stuff out of this entirely, yeah. and you have this vampire, you know, uh, cult that came in, and then there we had vampires, vampires in the Hyperion, in the Hyperion waiting for apart. the Miracle Child. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. That he would take all those vampires apart, I would believe in a heartbeat, because that's what he's used to. These guys have technology that Holtz could not even imagine. Yeah. He's been in the, you know, the 21st century for, I don't know, 30, 45 minutes, right? Um, so I think that his understanding of what they can do isn't there, but he understands vampires at the core of his being. Yeah. And I think that him taking out 
all of those vampires on his own. Yes. When Angel and, you know, everybody had to escape the vampires that were in the... Particularly, if no spoilers, but on both yeah. sides of the Buffy divide here, we are eventually, because of the, the uh-huh. vampire problem that yeah. we've discussed, we are eventually going to introduce super vampires. Uh-huh. We're going to do that yeah. slightly differently in Sunnydale and in LA. Mm-hmm. But this would have been a great opportunity to introduce... Some kind of super vamp. Mm -hmm. If we had reestablished these particular vampires as a legitimate threat and then had Holtz take them out anyway. Yes. Mm -hmm. That would have spoken to Angel's absolute vulnerability in this moment. And and Darla's too, because I think by this point we care care about Darla. We do care about Darla. But I mean, Angel right now is weakened because he is not on his own. He is trying to protect his team. He's trying to protect Darla, the unborn baby. Like that means there are things that he can't do that Holtz can do because Holtz has nobody but himself. Yeah. So I think that that would have been really nice. This could have been, honestly, you take out all the Wolfram and Hart nonsense and you make this about this, like, and I would have believed like one clan of, of vampires being the antagonist for this episode, that they know about the baby. But, I could have taken a handful of different clans, a yeah. handful of different demonic factions. I think the whole thing would have worked. I could have had a scene from Wolfram and Hart mm. telling me that they too were interested in this, that they too yeah. were players in this particular game. I like that expansion well, of the if world. They sat back but and primary said, antagonism Ulthar's, is vital. Ulthar's yeah. followers are taking him out. Let's just see what happens. You there know? could have been an opportunity for, been, for exposition. There, yeah, sure. Lila could have done that. Lila yeah. could have been like, hey, look, we don't get our, yeah. our hands and bloody unless we absolutely have to. These guys will take care of it. Absolutely fair. And if you talk about how dangerous that clan is and right. all of that kind of stuff, then you could make that work. And in that context, when we're talking about Wolfram and Hart, we're talking about Lila, not right. about the entire ensemble. For exactly, because it's Lila's competence that I'm interested in. Lila Lila's is the my... That we care about. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, she is my Wolfram and Hart, you know, surrogate. So sure. she's she the one I want it. to experience that through. I don't care about Linwood. She can explain it to Gavin Park, yeah. but... You know, she's the one that needs to drive the action. Exactly. That I think is, is perhaps the most egregious misfire in the Wolfram and Hart side of this mm-hmm. story is that we're just not sufficiently tight in Lila's POV. Exactly, exactly. And that we're just completely undercutting all of the yeah. danger of Wolfram and Hart, which we have spent a number of seasons building up. These are supposed to be serious people. The most serious. And they're not. Holland Manners is spinning in his... Well, wherever In he his is. elevator? Sure. I guess, maybe? I don't know. Out in the alley, <laughs> no one knows what to do. And when Darla's water breaks, they super don't know what to do. And where the hell is Angel anyway? And that's it. And that's it. That's the end of that's our episode. All they wrote. It is, I think, more a cliffhanger ending than it is the middle of a two-part episode yeah. because we are we have drawn to a close all of our primary lines of conflict in the episode. Yes. We're going to pivot from them into related lines of conflict mm-hmm. in the next episode, but it doesn't quite hang together as a two-part episode as tightly yeah. as it would need to for us to break the cardinal rule here on so to just one episode a at a time. Yeah. Absolutely. Particularly because that would push Tabula Rasa back by another week. And, and we can't have that. I, I don't think that I can wait that long. <laughs> I don't think that I can wait that long for Tabula Rasa. So overall, I like a lot about this episode. Yeah. There are things in it that I really enjoy, and it is a kind of storytelling that I think Angel is proving increasingly adept at. Mm-hmm. This is Angel at its at its very largest scale, at its very highest stakes. And I I appreciate that from this show. Mm-hmm. None of that works for you. It, no, it undercuts itself at every turn. I like Holtz. Um, I like Darla. And I think that that's pretty much it. Everything else in this episode feels well, the scattered and, and come unfocused. Pretty okay. The they don't get that much have to do. Almost nothing to do aside from Wesley, who We've, is showing competence in an area in which he should have absolutely no idea what he's doing. It it feels just 
janky. We've it doesn't hold together. Hardly at all about Angel himself. Mm-hmm. How does he work for you? That moment when he realizes that it's a boy. Yeah. Is I mean, that's a really good moment. That's it a is. really human and And David Boreanaz, I think, does a great job with what he's given. I don't think Angel is given a lot in this episode. He is very much in the background. You yes, know? there's just not a lot of space, which is one yeah. of the reasons I think that Wesley would serve better as as a point of conflict for Angel. Right. If mm-hmm. Wesley had been the voice of of pragmatism, particularly as we're leading of, toward we darker Wesley. Yeah. What this is, we don't know what's going on with this baby. You know, don't get your hopes up about having a, you know, a normal child at sure. this point, you know, that, um, and leaving some of that, we are really trying very hard to hit on this child is human, this child is human. And then we have this discussion earlier in the episode where everybody's talking about the many ways in which they will dismember and behead this child when it's born, mm-hmm. you know, um, which feels to me like that's also jumping a gun. You're presuming, presuming that it's human is, is, is jumping to conclusions and presuming that it's not is jumping to conclusions. You have yeah. to wait until the baby is born and then try to figure out what's going on. But again, I don't know I don't know what we're supposed to infer from the broad assertions that have been made in last week's episode and in this week's episode. I don't know at this point mm-hmm. in Angel. I don't know how secure I'm supposed to be in the idea that this is just a human baby. Well, the idea that Wesley would say, oh, well, let's behead it as soon as it comes out, that Wesley is much more pragmatic. Right. He's Having, much more careful than that. It was for the purpose of a joke so that we could have Angel say, hey, nobody beheads the baby. Sure. You know, and it doesn't work. Because it's, we established the heartbeat with Wesley's last week. character. Yeah. It's inconsistent with Wesley's character. If we have Angel getting very invested in the idea that this baby is human, that this baby has a soul and Wesley is like, we don't know what we're dealing with, then yeah. you've got a nice emotional beat for them to play off of. But instead, we undercut that so that we can have this, you know, kind of weak joke. Yeah, and that would be a particularly interesting inversion for Angel and Wesley because mm-hmm. previously Wesley has been a more optimistic voice. He's been a more hopeful voice. He has been Angel's moral compass more than once. And now for him to be taking this pragmatic line, I would find that really really an interesting character move for Wesley. That said, while it is a scrappy, messy, unfocused, ill-disciplined episode of television, Mm -hmm. the ideas that are contained within here, I think really work for me. And Mm -hmm. we shouldn't overlook the absolute triumph that is Daniel Holtz. Yes. No, I he's fantastic. For this character to work this well, and Sajan too, I mm-hmm. think for those characters to work as well as they do is is no mean feat. Yeah. There are things to enjoy. Let's put it on the list, shall we? There are things to enjoy. Let's put it on the list. Well, I'll tell you, I will give you my opening bid. When I looked at the list, I ended up in kind of the mid-30s, um, between Blood Money and Eternity coming in at number 34. That's wow. my opening bid. That's about where I That's where I you are now after the conversation? That's where I am now after the conversation. Okay, I am 15 points higher than All you. All right, so I where are you? I would put this in right between Are You Now or Have You Ever Been and Disharmony. Wow. I know that you like Disharmony more than I do, so I would be willing to compromise down, put it under Disharmony, above that old gang of Better mine. than Parting Gifts. Better than In the Dark. Yeah, I think so. Better than... It's just... It's bigger. It, it's difficult, obviously, to compare Season 3 Angel to Season yeah. 1 Angel because no, the show is, is just so much more oranges. now yeah, than exactly. it used to be. It feels mm-hmm. it feels 
positively prosaic to go back to to season one and think about Angel and Cordelia and Doyle, you know, yeah. solving these minor little mysteries, fighting one demon at a time. Now we're dealing with with prophecies and armies and a coming darkness. So it is difficult to reconcile those two versions of this show. It is. But for me, in terms of my personal enjoyment, yeah, I have no trouble putting it above the trial, for uh-huh. example, putting it above Warzone, putting it above Parting Gifts. Yeah, absolutely. God, yeah, for me, I think, like, Hero is probably my ceiling for this episode. <laughs> so, like, 28 under Hero, but above The Ring. Well, okay. But I don't think it's okay. better than The Ring, Let's look either. at it this way, all right? Yeah. 29 is Expecting. Yes. Another pregnancy story. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's better than Expecting. Can we can we make that blanket proclamation? Um, expecting is not good. I think, in, I think in some ways it's better than Expecting, okay. sure. So if that's our floor... I don't know. I'm not sure that I can put it in below Hero. I think maybe between Redefinition and The Trial. Okay. I think it's better than The I Trial. Think I, I can... think practically for me, The Trial may be my, my floor here. Yeah. Okay. No, I can, I can work with that as long as it's not above In the Dark. Because that is, I, I cannot go better than In the Dark. Okay. Then let's okay. put it in. Let's put it in at number 26 <laughs> on the list under Redefinition above the trial. Sure, sure. That's a, that's a solid spot. I think that's a nice compromise. Sure. <laughs> I think that's a nice compromise. And that, then, will do it for today. We'll be back on Thursday with our thoughts on episode eight of season six of Buffy Tabula Rasa, in which a memory spell goes wrong and is such a surprise. <laughs> Next Monday, Darla goes into labor on episode nine of season three of Angel Lullaby. If you've got thoughts and would like to share them with us, please visit storywonk.com slash contact for more information on all the ways that you can get in touch. Or follow at Storywonk on Twitter for the latest updates, announcements, and shirtless grad students. If you're a writer, or if you love a writer, now is the time to take advantage of our Journeyman Writer Class Bundle Sale. We offer eight two-hour classes detailing everything that any writer needs to know from storytelling to publishing to screenwriting, all available for a special low holiday price. Gift certificate options are available too. So for that writer in your life, your Christmas worries are over. Head on over to storywalk.com slash classes for more information. Until next time, I'm Alistair Stevens. And I'm Lonnie Diane Rich. And this is Dusted. Grrrr. Arrgh.